Sometimes Christians fall into a rut. We go through the motions of living the Christian life, and, and yet it's without any genuine feeling. And I'll admit I've been there. Have you been there at times in your Christian life? You know, in such times, we're not really excited about God. And if we're honest, to a certain degree, we're ignoring God to some degree. We begin possibly by ignoring the Holy Spirit, His guiding in our life, or His convicting of our heart, uh, perhaps through the, the preaching or the reading of God's Word. And it seems like when we begin to ignore the Spirit, His leading, His convicting in our life, it's, it's really soon that we begin ignoring His Word to a, to a greater degree and a greater degree as time goes on, to the point where we can be very nonchalant about His Word. So we begin ignoring his spirit, we begin ignoring his word, we may even begin ignoring his church, his people, one anothering one another. We begin ignoring his purpose for our lives, we begin ignoring his will for our lives, and, and it seems like when everything is going great in life, when everything's going so well, and we don't need anything, it's very tempting for us just to take it easy, isn't it? Isn't it? It's easy for us just to coast and let the days go by, one after another. And, and what we don't realize is that, that we become complacent. Complacent. Complacency is the definitions here on the screen for you. It's a feeling of contentment or self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by an unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Though there's dangers, and this is a real danger, complacency in all areas of our life, tonight we're going to just talk about spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency. Spiritual complacency is is simply when we have reached a point of satisfaction, a, a contentment. We become comfortable in our faith. We don't really feel like we need to move forward in our Christian life, and sin slowly starts to influence us. A.W. Tozer said this, one of the greatest foes of the Christian is spiritual complacency. Orthodox Christianity has fallen to its present low state, and of course this is many years ago that he, he wrote this. Orthodox Christianity, he says, has fallen to its present low state from a lack of spiritual desire. Among the many who profess the Christian faith, Tozer says, scarcely one in a thousand reveal any passionate thirst for God. And we have to ask ourselves the question tonight, what about us? What about me What about you? Have we fallen victim to spiritual complacency in our life? It may not be your problem right now, but I can almost guarantee you at some point in your Christian life, it will be a problem. It'll be something that you will have to battle. We all have a tendency to slip into spiritual complacency. See, at some point in our Christian life. Well, in Amos chapter 6, Amos is describing a people who have become dangerously complacent, spiritually complacent. And Amos says this in verse number 1. Look what he says. He says, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. That could literally be translated, woe to those who are complacent. 
Woe to those who are at ease. Their self-satisfaction and their, and their arrogance led them to this disbelief of at the actual impending danger. Here's Amos. He's delivering God's message as we've seen up to this point. Man, he's been preaching his heart out. He's been delivering the message of God. But they are ignoring it. They're dismissing it. Look at verse number three. You dismiss any thought of the evil day. The New Living Translation uh, translates verse three this way. You push away every thought of coming disaster but your actions only bring the day of judgment closer. Like the rich young fool in Luke chapter 12 who had many goods stored up. Remember this guy? Well, their philosophy was just like his. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But the rich fool, like the rich fool, these Israelites in Amos' day, their complacent ignorant, ignorant, ignoring of God, excuse me, was only bringing the day of judgment closer. So here's tonight's big idea of the message. God detests spiritual complacency among his people. He detests this. This is what Amos 6 serves for us as believers today. I believe it serves as a warning for us Today, it shows us how complacency can become a very real threat to us as the people of God. The greatest danger to a follower of Jesus is to become content with something less than what God wants for us. Something less than what God wills for us. To become half-hearted in our Christian life and to the point of we're just ignoring our heavenly Father, as we see Amos, as was going on in Amos's day. So tonight, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see the problem, the peril, and the prescription for complacency. All right, so number one, the problem. The problem or the, the prospect of complacency. And, and here's the truth here. Comfort and plenty breeds complacency. Comfort and plenty. And that's exactly what we find the con in the, in, as the conditions in Israel at the, in, during Amos' day. They were comfortable and they had plenty. And so let's, let me give you a couple thoughts here that we see from this chapter when complacency becomes a threat. Number one, complacency becomes a threat when we begin to feel like we are safe and secure. Safe and secure. Look there at verse number two. Amos says, those who feel secure on the hill of Samaria. So get the picture here. We've already seen this in the first five chapters. And, and he's just, again, he's again explained, describing for us the condition of what was going on in Samaria. Here we have these, highly, these people who highly esteemed the leadership of the nation. And they placed their full trust in them despite the corruption that was going on. Uh, among the elites in Samaria. But they continued to look to their leaders for help and they trusted in their leaders to keep their, their nation strong militarily, strong economically. They trusted their leaders to provide them lasting security and prosperity. 
You see, oftentimes luxury and false security go hand in hand. So it was in Israel, and I have to say, I think the same thing exists today in America. Luxury and false security go hand in hand, right? I mean, we live in the most wealthy nation that has ever existed on planet Earth. Uh, the, the luxuries that we enjoy today, I'm not saying, I'm not preaching against those things. It's not wrong to have luxuries. But what happens is we see here in, in Israel and what we see in our nation is that those things be, become idols in our lives. And it causes us, even as God's people, to become spiritually complacent and to begin ignoring God You see, the people in Israel felt as if they were invulnerable. You know, history is full of people who thought themselves to be invulnerable. One such example is, uh, comes from the, the Scottish Wars of Independence uh, at the Battle of Stirling Bridge, September 11th, just a couple days away, right? But, but 1297, a couple hundred years ago, but, but September 11th. The Battle of Stirling Bridge, English nobleman John de Warren and Hugh de Cressingham, they led their formidable forces of well-trained infantry and heavy cavalry across this bridge that you see on the screen behind me. Two by two, cross the bridge against a, a greatly outnumbered and untrained Scottish infantry led by Andrew Morey and, and William Wallace. Well, the English had defeated the Scots many times before this. They, they weren't really concerned. They thought this was going to be a really easy battle. Up to this point, no infantry alone had ever been successful in defeating the English heavy cavalry. And so the English believed that there was no real de- uh, danger. There's no real threat. And, but at the end of the day, 70 to 90% of the English troops lay dead while the Scots lost very few in the battle. Hugh de Cressingham died in the battle. And according to legend, the Scots flayed him. And they said, just as his actions against Scotland had flayed their people, they flayed him. And it's said that William Wallace made a belt sword out of his skin. What happened? Well, belief in their invulnerability made them complacent and ultimately led them to their destruction. Are you you capturing this? This is how this works. We begin to feel safe and secure. We begin to feel invulnerable. And oftentimes that leads to our very destruction. This is what's going on in Israel. Complacency also becomes a threat second when we begin to think like we're bigger and better. Bigger and better. This is what's going on. Verses 1 through 3, man. The the wealthy noblemen of Israel, they become so self-absorbed that they believe themselves to be better than everybody else in society, right? Their, Their position, their power is feeding their ego. They just think they're better than everyone else. Not only did they think they were the best in the nation, they believed that they were the best nation on earth. And Amos is saying, really? Really? You think you're really big stuff? Look at verse 2. Cross over to Calah and see. Go from there to Hamath. Go down to, the, go down to Gath. Are you better than these kingdoms? Well, Amos is mentioning these other three nations, all of whom had posed a threat to Israel's national security not long before Amos had come on the scene and preached these messages. But King uh, Jeroboam II, who's who's reigning at this time, 
He brought Hamath and uh, Calmet uh, into or under his submission. Uh, uh, King Uzziah of Judah, he subjugated the Philistines early in his reign. And so these were nations that they had conquered. These were great nations, and, and, and yet they had victory over them. And so evidently these victories, it, it, it fed their, their sense of superiority. We've beaten our enemies, and, and they thought it was all about them. They thought it was their their power, their might, they forgot that it was God who always gave them their victories. You see, if we're not careful, we can begin to think just like them and begin to think that we're bigger and better than other people in mere Christianity. Have you ever read that book by C.S. Lewis? He talks about this bigger and better attitude that we can, we can get in our lives. He said, there's one vice of which no man in the world is free. Everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. Lewis says, I've heard people admit that they're bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. At the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who is not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to, to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular, no fault in which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it, the more we dislike it in others. What vice is he talking about? He says, I'm talking about pride or self-conceit. He says, pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the complete anti-God state of mind. And this is what Amos is calling out the children of Israel for. He says in verse 8, I, God says, I loathe Jacob's pride. There are all sorts of stumbling blocks that can lead to us being self-conceited, having this I'm bigger and better attitude, position, power, popularity, possessions, right? I mean, the more we have of those things, the bigger and better we think that we are. And all of these things can threaten us as believers. We need to remember, I think what Israel forgot, that everything we are, everything that we have, we owe to the grace of God, right? Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that the only good thing in us is Jesus. It's only Jesus. Apart from Christ, we aren't better than anybody else. Amen? We're not. Apart from Him, we're all condemned. Apart from Him, we, our eternity would be hell. I mean, apart from Jesus, what do we have apart from him? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. Knowing that should produce a, a sincere humility in our hearts toward God and toward other people. Well, com complacency threatens when we feel like we're safe and secure. We begin to think like we're bigger or better. I think Another thing we see here in these verses, verses 4 through 7, is that complacency threatens when we begin to act like we're the end-all and be-all. When we feel safe and secure, we start thinking that we're bigger and better, 
eventually we start thinking that we are the end-all, be-all. Like the universe revolves around me. Complacency can take two forms. We see it in, in two forms in this passage. First of all, among those who are at ease, right? The elites. They've made it. Look at verses 4, 5, 6, and 7. I mean, read the description, right? They're, they're lounging. They're laying back on their beds of ivory. They're comfortable couches. They're drinking wine by the, the bowlfuls, right? They're, they're, they've bathed themselves in luxurious oils. And they're, they're lounging around while they're, have, they're, while they're having music performed for them, right? So can you kind of picture that? in their ivory palaces, right? I mean, they are, they're, they're, they're laying back on beds of ease. This is why they're complacent. The other form that it can take is what we read between the lines, and that is those that were so overwhelmed, so, unti- so tired, so uncertain that they've given up hope, the poor among them. Those who, are be, those who are being treated unjustly, those who were on the receiving end of what the elites were doing, those, they were complacent. They just gave up. Well, there's nothing I can really do. And what happens? In the same way for the elites, their world begins revolving around themselves. It can happen for those who are on the receiving end of the injustice. Those of us who are on the receiving end of, of whatever the elites are, we can become so self-consumed in whatever poverty we think that we have. In either case, it's still complacency. We've, we've still allowed our lives to be the end-all, be-all. When we quit caring about anything other than ourselves, We've become complacent. Well, comfort and plenty breeds this. It breeds us. Well, you know what happens when you put a frog into boiling water? What would happen if you put it through a frog into boiling water? Jump out, right? It's not what you do. If you want to cook the frog, you, you put it in cool water, right? And you just turn the heat up and you let it warm up ever so slowly. And what happens is the frog slowly goes to sleep and slowly dies as the heat increases. You know, as human beings, we can be lulled to sleep by material prosperity to the point that we have it so good that we're blind to the danger just like the frog in the pot. We're just comfortable. We just kind of go to sleep. We become spiritually complacent, but we're blind in that moment to the danger. And this brings me to my second point, the peril of complacency. And, And here's the truth. Complacency blinds us to the approaching danger. And this is what's going on. Verse number one, Amos says, woe to those who are at ease. Woe to those. The New Living Translation uh, translates this, What sorrow awaits you? In verse number 8, the Lord promises, I will hand over the city and everything in it. And so the remainder of chapter 6 describes what is approaching, the danger that is approaching. In verses 9 and 10, he talks about the death that was approaching. He says if 10 men are in a house, they're going to die. 
In verse number 10, he gives this picture of a man after the siege uh, going in to these homes and taking out these bodies and burning them to, to prevent an outbreak of disease. The description is that of all the survivors, any of the survivors, they, they go into hiding and they're afraid to even mention the name of the Lord because they begin to realize that it was God who had brought this judgment on them. And so there would be death in verses 11 through 13. Amos says there would be destruction. Man, verse number 11 gives this powerful picture of the destruction that was coming. He says, the large house will be smashed into pieces and the small house to rubble. Complete destruction. Why? Well, verse number 12, Amos identifies their injustice again. In verse number 13, he identifies their pride, injustice and pride over and over in the book of Amos, man. This is the cause. This is what has led Israel to their destruction. And the death of exile is all because of the crime, crimes against humanity and crimes against God. And so there would be death, there would be destruction, and there would be defeat. Verse number 14 describes the totality of the defeat. Look at it. He says, from one end of the country to the other, they're going to suffer from the entrance of Hamath to the brook of Arabah. In other words, from the, the northern mountainous region to the, the, the southern Dead Sea region, complete death and destruction is what they had coming. Here's what Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 32 says. It says, the complacency of fools will destroy them. Let that verse just kind of sink in. When we get complacent, we're being foolish. And destruction's not far behind. A Scottish professor, and he was a professor of universal history, Alexander uh, Fraser Tiddler, lived uh, 1747 to 1813. He said this. He said that the average world's uh, the average age of the world's greatest civilizations has only been 200 years. Now, again, this was written 1747 to 1813. Maybe that average would increase, maybe, perhaps. I mean, America wasn't quite that old when he's writing this. But, but just look at all of them and, and average them all, all out. And here's what he found as he studied them. He said the nations have progressed to the, the following sequence. Here's the sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith, right? Some sort of bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From courage to liberty. I mean, you can think about the history of this nation, right? The bondage under English rule, right? To spiritual faith or the bondage when those that came over on the Mayflower, right? And, and all the, the pilgrims that came over, right? It was all from bondage to spiritual faith, to great courage, to liberty, from liberty to abundance. You've certainly enjoyed abundance, but from abundance to selfishness and from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, and from apathy to dependency, and from dependency back 
to bondage. This is how it works. Where do you think we are as a nation? Again, we're talking about spiritual complacency here. Spiritual complacency. But you can see what's going on in Israel. How they came out of bondage in Egypt, and now they've gone through this cycle, and where are they going out? They're going back into bondage. They're going into exile. You know, in God's order of things, a lazy, indulgent nation that forgets character, that forgets God, that forgets to care for its needy, it rots from the inside and becomes an easy prey to some aggressor. So the truth is, God didn't have to destroy Israel. Israel was destroying itself. Just like every other empire has ever done on the face of the earth, we end up destroying ourselves. But let's just think about spiritual complacency. What about us? Are, are, do, are we destroying ourselves by being complacent? Are we destroying ourselves by, by living the same type of way as they were living in Amos' day? R.G. Lee in the famous sermon, Payday Someday, he said this. He said, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Isn't that how it always works? That's how it worked for Israel. This is how it works in our life. It always costs more than we actually want to pay. Ultimately, the complacent of this world will face the judgment of God. Anyone who feels at ease in Zion, quote-unquote, like, like those in in Amos's day there, as he points out in verse number one, when we feel completely satisfied, how many people today just feel completely satisfied with everything the world offers, but is like an ostrich with its head in the sand, right? Completely content, completely at ease, and yet not even recognizing the danger that is on its way. And so ignoring God and seeking peace and security and prosperity in this world instead of God, it only leads to a life of delusion. How many people are disillusioned today? They have so much, and yet they recognize they're missing something. Well, ultimately, all of that leads to destruction. The world collapses. Everything fails. It deteriorates. It dies. It decays. It eventually fades away. And so complacency is the enemy of our spiritual life. It's the enemy, Christian, this is how we need to see it. Complacency is the enemy of our Christian growth. And so let's wrap up with this, the, the prescription for it. How do we, if this is a real problem, if this can be a problem for us, what do we do when we find ourselves dealing with spiritual complacency? The, the, the simple truth here, is to refuse to let complacency rule your life. Church, let's do that. Let's refuse to remain in any sort of complacency. Amos, he sent here to these people. He sent there to deliver God's message, not merely to condemn them for their complacency. He's, he's showing them a path forward. He, he wants them to come out of their complacency. What's the way forward? What is the way forward when we find ourselves in spiritual complacency? Well, let's do this. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. 
as we wrap this up tonight. Romans chapter 13, I think, helps us understand the way forward, the way out of complacency. Romans chapter 13, because Paul's writing to a church here, the church in Rome, that in many ways has become very spiritually complacent. Let's read, beginning in verse number 11. This is Romans chapter 13, beginning in verse number 11. Paul says, it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. Notice the word sleep there. Well, in the Greek, uh, that word in Greek is the, the word from which we get our English word hypnosis from. And it literally means to be drowsy, to be drowsy. So he's saying it's time for you to wake up out of your sleep. They're saved, but they're in spiritual la-la land. You know how you get about, this is how I get about 9 p.m. How many of you get about 9 p.m. You start getting a little drowsy, right? Some of you guys can stay up till 1 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get drowsy. It's like I go from like, on to off in a very short period of time nowadays. Well, they're in this spiritual days. This is who Paul's writing to. They're nodding off into a spiritual siesta, a lot like the elites in Amos's day, napping on their beds and laid with ivory, right? Paul says what? He says, wake up. Wake up. It's the hour for you to wake up. Why? Because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. What in the world is he talking about? Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed? Well, you understand that there are three different aspects of salvation, right? The first aspect is justification. That is when we are, were declared righteous. The moment that, that we put our faith in Christ and, and Christ came into our heart and life and saved us. The moment we were redeemed and adopted into the family of God, we are declared righteous. That's justification. In that moment, God the Father declared us righteous. He, he exchanged our unrighteousness for the righteousness of Christ. We swapped accounts with Jesus. In that moment, we are fully righteous in God's sight in our legal standing with God the second aspect is sanctification that's an ongoing process and that's the process that that they were going through in Rome these folks he's writing to believers they had already been justified but they're being sanctified and that's a process that goes from the moment we're justified to the to the last aspect or phase of salvation and what is that church it's glorification that's the moment when we're in heaven that's the moment when, when we are released from the very presence of sin for all eternity. Somebody say hallelujah. It's coming. It's coming. So what is he saying? That your salvation is near. He's saying that, look, you, you are justified. And here you, you're being sanctified. But you are, you are ever so closer to your glorification when you'll, when you'll be in God's presence once and for all, for all eternity, th th that day is closer than it's ever been. In church, it is for us too, right? And Paul says, look, wake up. Why? Because the day is approaching. We're, we're going to be standing before Jesus soon. 
He says the night, verse 12, is nearly over and the day is near. So let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. So what I think Paul gives us here is a prescription for spiritual complacency. Here's what it begins with. The prescription begins with, first of all, a healthy dose of reality. The realization, this realization, a realization of our spiritual state, overcoming complacency begins with an awareness of it. An awareness of it. This is tough. Why? Because the people in Rome that Paul is writing to, just as the people that Amos is talking to, preaching to, they're wide awake, physically speaking. They're wide awake. They're living in all, right? They're living, breathing people at the time. But they're, but they're in this spiritual slumber. It, you can't have a conversation with someone who's in a sound sleep, now can you? Have you ever tried? Sometimes my wife tries to have a conversation with me when I'm wide awake but tuned into something else, right? right? If she knows, man. If I'm at my computer, I'm working, you know what I mean? Like I can be, uh-huh, 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 and who knows what I just agreed to, <laughs> right? I, I got to stop what I'm doing. Otherwise, it's really, but trying to have a conversation is bad enough trying to have a conversation with a man who's distracted, right, right ladies? Much less a sleeping man who's sound asleep. Have you, ever, have you ever tried to wake someone up, you know, and here's what's happened to me at times, right? You get woken up in the middle of the night. It takes me a few minutes to, to come to, to, like, to be able to, to process what people are saying to me, right? I remember one night, kids are banging on my door, you know, I'm banging on my door. I'm, so, you know, you jump up and you, you go to the door and they're saying, Dad, you got you to gotta come. You know, someone had hit one of our cars in the front of our house. Well, it took me, it took me several, you know, seconds at least to, like, wake up and process this. Well, when we think about spiritual slumber, one of the main purposes of Amos' preaching is What? to make them aware of their spiritual complacency to say, we got to wake up. Wake up. Wait, th- this is, he's calling the nation to arise. This is exactly what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 13. He's saying, wake up. Jesus says the same thing to the spiritually complacent church at Laodicea. This is Revelation 3.17. You say, I am rich and I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Who does that sound like? Doesn't that sound like Amos chapter 6? You say you're rich and you don't need anything. Jesus says, but you don't even realize that you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. The church was wide awake, but they were sound asleep. They didn't recognize. They were not aware of their complacency. Amos, his his preaching was to provide a jolt 
to the reality of their complacency. Paul is writing to provide a jolt and awareness of their spiritual complacency. Can I ask us tonight, is it possible that that we've drifted off into a spiritual slumber, that we've become spiritually complacent, that we've been ignoring God, but we're not even really aware of it. We're wide awake, but to a large degree, we're sound asleep. I think the enemy wants to keep us there, don't you? The enemy wants to keep us in the dark. He wants us to to remain asleep. He wants us to be content and comfortable with, with our spirituality just as it is, especially when we are sound asleep. And so may God use this message tonight as a, as a wake-up call. May the Spirit of God stir within us to stir us out of a spiritual slumber if that is where we are tonight. And so the prescription begins with a heavy dose of, of realization. And then, it, then it, secondly, it needs to include a heavy dose of elimination. Realization and then elimination. Repent of the spiritual faults and failures. Why? Because there's always a link. You go to Amos, you go to Romans, you, you go to uh, Revelation chapter 3. There's always this link between spiritual complacency and spiritual corruption. Both Paul and Amos and Jesus, they they all make this connection. Paul says this, Romans 13, he says, wake up, the time is short. So, verse 12, let us discard the deeds of darkness. Not in carousing, he says, in drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. You see, it sounds like the Roman church, some in the Roman church were caught up in the same sins, the deeds of darkness that were going on in Amos' day. And Paul says what? He calls them to do what? Discard them. Discard them. We're to live as Christ lived. If we're a follower of Jesus, we're to imitate Jesus Christ. James put it this way, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Right? live in a world where evil is prevalent. Well, as a follower of Jesus, we're to be different. We're, to, we're, we're, not, to, we're not to live in the, doing the same deeds of darkness as, as the world is doing. James says in chapter 4 and verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded, right? So as we draw near to God, as we take a step to God, if we've been sleeping, when we draw near to God, part of this has to be the cleansing of our hands or or the washing of our sin, the confessing of our sin, the eliminating of the corruption in our life that is separating us from our Heavenly Father. Maybe the complacency isn't a, a... Maybe the sin didn't come before the complacency. Oftentimes the complacency comes first and then the sin just kind of intertwines itself in our life. And it has to be eliminated if we're going to follow the next part of the prescription. And I think after a healthy dose of realization and a heavy dose of elimination, we need a hearty dose of devotion. That is a renewed passion for God. To bounce back from spiritual complacency involves this very thing, returning to our first love. Our first love. Isn't that what Christianity is all about, church? 
It's not about following rules. It's not about checking things off a list. It is about knowing Jesus Christ. It is about having a day-to-day walk with Jesus Christ, a relationship with him. You see, Christianity is a deliberate decision to go after God. Just like David said in Psalm 42, as the deer longs for the flowing streams, so I long for you, O God. Spiritual passion is more than emotion. It's a fire that, that burns within us that continues to draw us back into the presence of God. Have you lost that fire? Have you lost that draw? If so, it's often a sign of spiritual complacency. And the the cure for that complacency after being aware of it and eliminating anything between you and God is to begin seeking his face. This message spoken 2,700 years ago by Amos is still a cutting-edge message. Seek the Lord. Amos says. Look, I know it's easier to stay in bed. It's easier to to just silence the noise of the prophet, you know, of Amos. It's just easier to pamper ourselves. It's easier to feel sorry for ourselves. It's easier to feel sorry for our crummy circumstances and not do anything about it. But rather than ignoring God, we're called to seek God, to seek him, to recover our love for Jesus. How do we do that? Well, I put a couple pictures on this slide because our love for him, I think it's going to require us to look to him, the eyeball there, looking to him. Reminding ourselves of of who he is. Reminding ourselves of what he has done in a moment we're going to observe communion. This is a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And my prayer tonight is that that we wouldn't partake of communion just as a, it's what we do at church, but as an opportunity for us to evaluate in our own, have I been spiritually complacent? Look what Jesus has done for me. What? Why have I fallen asleep? Should I not love him? Should I, should I not walk with him and, and, and talk with him each and every day? Paul says, after he says, wake up and put off the deeds of the flesh, he says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. He died to save us. Not just in eternity, but in the here and now, to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, from our pathetic self-centeredness, right? When I feel most at distance with God, I find that I've replaced something, I've replaced something in the place of Jesus in my life. That is spiritual complacency. So we need to make more of Jesus by looking to him and then by listening to him. Involves our ear by respond, then responding to what he, what he says. James says, humbly receive the implanted word, right? Don't ignore God, 
but receive what God says. Hear what God says. That's what was needed in Amos, right? Listen to, listen to Amos's message. They would have been spared the destruction and the death and all the judgment. They would have been spared all of that had they just heard and heeded the message. This is what we're called to do, to hear and to heed the message. Amos was preaching, but nobody cared to listen church can i encourage us create time and space for god to speak to you we're so busy and there's always so much noise in our life do we ever take time and space make time and space for god to speak to us sometimes we open his word but it's we're not even really giving god space to actually speak to us we're just doing it to check it off the list or whatever Will we make time for God to speak to us? And then as he speaks to us from his word, will we respond with obedience to it? Hearing and heeding his word. I think we have to return to that secret place. If we're going to get out of spiritual complacency, it's not about filling our lives with a a lot of religious things to do. It's simply loving the Lord with all of our heart, growing again in our passion, our love, and our devotion to God. Here's your next steps tonight. Number one, I will do an honest evaluation. Have I become spiritually complacent? Could we tonight do an honest evaluation? I'm sure, as I said, I think Satan wants to keep us complacent. That old man-made parable suggests how Satan once summoned his top aides to plan how to stop a group of dedicated Christians. Remember this? One suggested that they might convince them that there's no God. Satan was like, yeah, I don't think that's going to work. Others suggested that, that uh, there was too much evidence that there is a God. Another suggested that they could work to convince them that God doesn't really care about right and wrong. That got dismissed rather quickly as well. Finally, one suggested that we, they just keep whispering, there is no hurry, there is no hurry. Just be complacent. Have we been complacent? Will we do an honest evaluation. Has this, will the Spirit of God prompt us in our life and reveal that to us? Step number two is, I'll ask God then to help me in my spiritual complacency and pray that the Holy Spirit will reinvigorate my passion for Him. May God help us. It's easy to feel guilty for not seeking God. The point of the message isn't tonight that we walk out feeling guilty or fretting about it. God's willing to forgive us. God was willing to forgive his people in Amos' day. He was willing to forgive them. Aren't you glad that God's mercies are new every single morning? Amen? Every day. And so although we've been faithless and though we have not been faithful, God is always faithful and he will forgive us our spiritual journeys it's a lifetime 
But may we, may we not continue in any spiritual complacency. May we tonight, may we allow the Holy Spirit of God to, to show us, to convict us, and then may we respond to that and ask him to help us. Step number three, I won't wait until I feel like seeking God. I will intentionally set my heart to seeking his face and tune my ears to hearing his word. We have to be intentional about it. If we're going to wait till we have some burning feeling within us to seek God, if we're in a place of complacency, we're not going to have that feeling. Rather than looking for a feeling or waiting for a feeling, we need to just intentionally seek the Lord. So church, let's not ignore God. Let's look to him and listen to him and love him with all of our heart. Amen.